are here this morning to direct our attention to our God. The God who is full of mercy and grace. And may we direct our eyes to him once again in prayer. Lord God, we praise you. That you are the God whose mercy is more. You are the God whose mercy abounds more than we can fathom, that we can understand. Lord God, we praise you for your grace. That's sufficient for us. That gives us life. And Lord God, we thank you for the mercy and grace you have given our small congregation. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us throughout this last year. Your faithfulness in providing for us, of keeping us united in the midst of chaos in the outer world. Lord, in the midst of divisions, you have kept your people together. Lord God, may we be ministers of mercy. May we be people who faithfully embrace the call you have placed on our lives. Lord God, may we be a blessing to Corvallis. And God, we rejoice that in your goodness, we are not alone in Corvallis. We are not alone as the sole ones to proclaim the gospel and see your good news reach the nations. No, Lord, we rejoice that there are many other gospel-believing, gospel-preaching churches in this city that desire to see your name made known, to see people repent and turn to you. Lord God, this morning we praise you for Zach Washburn at Calvin Press. Lord God, as he preaches this morning, may the meditation of his heart and the words of his mouth. May it be pleasing to you, Lord. God, we pray for Josh at Northwest Hills. May he preach your scripture with boldness and truth. May it pierce the hearts of his listeners that they may rejoice in your Lord, we pray for Seth Trimmer this morning at Grace City. Lord God, give him the strength and the honesty to preach your word in all fullness of truth. To convict and to challenge and yet to instill hope in his people. God, be with Brian at Grant Aff this morning. But may you use him for your glory, that he may proclaim the truth of your scripture. And Lord God, we, we recognize that, that you call us also to pray, not just for one another, but to pray for our leaders as well. And so God, we pray this morning for President Biden and Vice President Harris. Lord God, may you lead them to live lives of peace, Lord God, may you instill in them, may we see godliness and holiness in the way they lead this country. Lord God, may we see unity instead of division. 
And Lord, we pray this morning for Governor Brown as well, God, as she's in the midst of having a tough job of trying to navigate how to guide Oregon out of this pandemic. Lord God, may you direct her, may you give her guidance, may you give her counsel around her guidance of how to best go about leading this state. And Lord God, not only do you tell us to pray for our leaders and our rulers, but you tell us to pray for this world. And Lord, this morning we pray for the country of India. Once again, Lord, recognizing how COVID has wreaked havoc through that country. There's pain, there's sorrow, there's heartache, there's loss. Lord, may you use this as an opportunity to turn people to you. To see that the religions of Hinduism and Buddhism and and Islam are, are failing, are fleeting, Lord. But you are the God that is eternal. You are the God that provides the grace and the mercy that is needed. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters, the Richtenbergs this morning, Trevor and Nivea, Lord. May you use them in that country to be a gospel presence and a gospel light. Lord God, may you use them to show that Jesus is not just one of many gods, but he is the only God. He is the only one that actually satisfies. He's the only one that can actually free us from damnation. Lord, use them in bold and mighty ways. Be an encouragement to them this morning as they're in the midst of being shut in in the chaos of this virus. And lastly, Lord, we pray for our time this morning. Lord, may you open the eyes of our hearts. May you pierce our souls with your goodness, with your mercy, with your grace. Lord God, may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you this morning. You have not turned there yet. Sorry, amen. (laughs) If you guys have not turned there yet, uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Mark. We're going to be Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. When you find yourself or someone you know and love in harm's way, how do you respond? And when I say harm, I don't simply mean physical danger. Rather, I think we recognize that harm comes in many different forms. It could be psychological, it could be emotional, it could be relational. When you find yourself in harm's way, how are you prone to respond? How do you handle the confrontation when you are the one that is being confronted? Do you quickly address the situation? Or do you just wait, hoping that somehow that conversation is going to fizzle out and you don't actually have to deal with it? How about when you're the one that needs to do the confronting? Do you go in aggressive or do you go in with grace and mercy? How about when you feel like your intelligence on a matter is being brought into question? You respond, trying to just fight for the truth or what you believe is truth regardless of the outcome? Or do you willingly concede to acknowledge your lack of understanding? 
for the parents in the room? How do you respond when your child is being picked on or bullied? Or better yet, how do you respond when your child is the one that is bullying or picking on? How do we respond when someone speaks poorly of us or someone we love? When someone speaks poorly about Christianity, about Jesus, about his very words. In 1915, American physiologist Walter Bradford Cannon coined the term fight or flight response. To explain this phenomenon that we experience when we are put in harm's way. When we perceive a threat, our autonomic nervous system kicks into overdrive. And we respond. You either square up, ready for a fight, or turn and hightail it out of the situation. How do we respond to perceived harm? To an attack, to a threat of our survival. Today we see how Jesus' followers respond under pressure. We see an array of responses. We see Judas ultimately betray Jesus. We see Jesus and his followers put in harm's way. And we see both responses of fight and flight from the disciples. Yet through it all, we see Jesus stay. We see Jesus endure. In one sense, we can see this sermon and understand it kind of as as last week's sermon Part two, for our text today directly follows the events of last week, this prayer in the garden. And in many ways, we could characterize our garden scene with with one word, that word being seizure. A seize or seizure comes up four times in our 10 verses. In this preceding section of Jesus praying in the garden, the disciples experience what you could call psychological and spiritual seizure. And yet here in our text today, in the midst of the arrest, they experience physical seizure. And the question is, when that moment comes, what are they going to do? In the preceding prayer section, the disciples failed to watch and wait. And in the arrest, the disciples failed to stay by their Lord and Savior. Yet praise the Lord that our King Jesus did not give in under pressure. But rather, in the midst of betrayal, fight and flight, Jesus endures. In the midst of betrayal, fight and flight, Jesus endures. And this morning, we will look at these four actions highlighted. In verses 43 through 45, we'll look at betrayal. Fight in verses 46 and 47. Flight in 48 through 52. And lastly, we'll look back at 48 and 49 as we see Christ, the one who endures. Betrayal. Let's read verses 43 through 45. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and swords and clubs 
from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him astray. I mean, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. If you've been with us through the majority of the book of Mark, you'll know that Mark's structure of his book is the first half, the first eight chapters are kind of like a slideshow or a snapshot approach to the ministry and life of Jesus. Feels like one story after another, cruising quickly, quickly, moving, moving, moving. And he emphasizes that through the use of the word immediately, used 28 times in the first eight chapters. But about halfway through the book, Mark shifts, and instead of this fast, fast, fast-paced experience, he slows us down to have us sit in the last week of Jesus' life. And yet here, once again, we see Mark use that coin term immediately, emphasizing again that this flows out of the passage we just read last week as Jesus prayed in the garden. As we sit in one of the darkest chapters in the whole Bible, we see Jesus proclaim, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And Mark follows that up with, and immediately. Just following the words of Jesus, we have Judas enter the scene. And Mark here refers to Judas as one of the twelve. And we should note that this is not Mark referring to Judas as one of the 12 because he's like, in case you guys forgot, Judas was one of his disciples. Rather, Mark uses the word one or the words one of the 12 to emphasize the height and depth of this betrayal. He was one of Jesus' own. Jesus called him to be an apostle. Judas walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, probably almost every day of this ministry. And in the end, he's the one who betrays Jesus. And not only that, he brings an armed arresting party who bears the authority of the Sanhedrin. What should be striking about this scene is that someone who knew Jesus so well, that is Judas, believed that armed guards were needed to seize and lead him away. It seems that even though Judas spent so much time with Jesus, he still lacked the understanding of who Jesus truly was, what Jesus truly taught. The irony is that most scholars actually believe Judas was a zealot. His surname Iscariot points to this radical Jewish group. You see, the the zealots, they were this political movement in the first century where they believed that Jerusalem and Israel needed to rise up against Rome, against the oppressors. They were revolutionaries. And we can realistically surmise that part of the reason that Judas betrayed Jesus was because Jesus wasn't actually the zealot that he was hoping for. Yes, Jesus was revolutionary. 
But as we'll come to see, he didn't revolt using his sword. No, he revolted using his body. The irony lies in the fact that though Judas betrays Jesus because he is not the zealot he thought he was, Judas then arrests Jesus under guard as if he was a zealot. Judas, one of the twelve, becomes Judas the betrayer and hands Jesus over with a kiss of death. When we think about characters in the Bible, I would assume very few of us to none look at Judas and think, yeah, I'm kind of like that guy. Yeah, friends, it's a lot easier than we think to betray Jesus. In the end, we must ask ourselves these questions. Do we love God? Or do we love the things that God gives us? the things that he does for us. When you feel like God isn't giving you the things you need or the things you believe you need in order to be happy, what does that do to your relationship with God? Do you press in or do you push away? Do you feel like God has let you down because he hasn't provided for you in the way you see fit? Has God failed you? Or do you see yourself complaining to God that he doesn't provide the things that you want and need and you look at the watching world, people that don't know Jesus, and you're like, why do they have it so much better than me? Or do we complain to God that our life is harder than the less mature, less devoted, less servant-minded Christians in our circle? If the answer is yes to any of those questions, not only do you have something in common with me and my own heart, but you also have something in common with Judas. You see, it's a lot easier than we think to betray Jesus in the ordinary means of life. For if we believe that Jesus isn't who he says he is, and if we believe that he's failing to live up to our expectations, that he isn't enough, these are subtle but very real forms, betrayal or being disloyal and unfaithful to our Savior. As one pastor, Mike McKinley says, it's so easy to make big promises to God on Sunday only to see them crumble when we're with our coworkers on Monday morning or meeting up with friends on Tuesday evening. Therefore, in many ways, the question is not, will I betray Jesus? But when I do, how will I respond? Judas and Peter ultimately are a great case study for this. Judas betrays Jesus with the kiss of death. And as we see in the concluding part of this chapter, Peter betrays Jesus by denying him three times. Yet the response is, could not be more different. You see, it's not Judas's betrayal, the action itself, that damns him. No, it's the fact that he doesn't pursue forgiveness or reconciliation with Christ. Judas felt great guilt. We see that. A guilt, as Matthew says, that actually led Judas to go back to the Sanhedrin and to throw the coins at their feet, saying, I don't want it anymore. 
as if that would make up for his actions. He couldn't live with himself for what he had done. But he didn't pursue Jesus. He didn't pursue repentance. Brother wallowed in his remorse. The remorse that led to his death. And then there's Peter. See, in Peter's betrayal, we seem to see true sorrow as he breaks down and weeps. But he did more than just weep. He actually repented of sins and he changed his ways. He turned back to Jesus. As the story continues, we see that he was with the disciples praying after the cross. He was the first disciple to enter the tomb to see that Jesus was gone. And we see at the end of the book of John, he's with Jesus, being restored, being told, Peter, you are the one to feed and tend my sheep, my people. We see that remorse alone is not enough. And maybe you're here this morning, you're feeling guilty and remorseful for what you've done. And you're thinking, Davy, I think I am Jesus. I've betrayed Jesus. And friend, you may be like Judas in your betrayal, but you don't have to be like Judas in your response. There's hope for you. The question is, how do you respond in the midst of your betrayal? We need to confess and turn to Christ. And we can be confident that Christ forgives for he is the one who endures for us. He is the one who took our betrayal and bore it on the cross. For John states, if we confess with our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the midst of betrayal, betrayal by one of his own apostles, Jesus endures. And Mark now turns our attention away from the betrayer away from the arresting party and focuses on the response of Jesus' followers to a man who's willing to fight. Verses 46 and 47. And they, that is the arresting party, laid their hands on him, Jesus, and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So the arresting party comes and seizes Jesus. And in the following moments, one of Jesus' followers in, in the dark chaos of night pulls out his sword and cuts off an ear to have it fall and land on the garden floor. And if we're reading in the book of Mark, that this feels like a rather odd element to incorporate into this story especially when there's no further details given on this reality. You see, this story is actually told in all four Gospels. Yet Mark spends the least amount of time on it, leaving out many details. The Gospel of John tells us that the sword-wielding man was Peter. But Mark is silent. 
The gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus healed the man's ear. But Mark is silent. And the gospel of Matthew uses this to teach about violence or really the lack of violence that we should have. But Mark is silent. Why does Mark stay silent in these three areas? We can't be for certain. But his silence seems to point to the fact that Mark wants to keep our attention on Jesus. He doesn't want us to be distracted wondering, who is that man? What's that story about? And yet Mark still provides us with the details of the night and challenges us to be introspective of everyone's actions in this story and to ask, who am I? And it seems evident that in the mind of this man, arguably Peter, he believed that these actions were justified and right. What he was doing was actually honoring Jesus. Do we act the same way? And I'm not saying, are we pulling out swords and cutting off people's ears? Please do not do that. But are we prone to fight for Jesus? As Tim Keller states in King's Cross, aren't we kind of like Peter? We say we're on the side of justice, of peace, of fairness. But when a challenge arises, we feel for the sword hilt. We merge the kingdom of this world, sword on top, then money, power, success, and recognition into our philosophy. Whether it's Christianity or something else, we settle for the kiss of death. We're exactly like When Jesus or your faith in Christ is seized in the public sphere, how do we respond? Do we pull out our figurative swords and go on the attack? Do we slay in the name of the Lord? Becoming keyboard warriors going to the defense of Jesus one stroke at a time. No holds barred. Does our desire to defend Jesus and our faith lead to saying and doing things that cause more harm than good? Anecdotally, I know over this last year getting on Facebook and seeing comment after comment after comment of people fighting for Jesus. It was a mess. One of the many reasons I stepped off of social media, seeing the harm that so much of this fighting for Christ actually did. Do we think that we can argue someone into the kingdom? That if we put on our apologetics armor and spiritually stab them enough times, then they'll repent and turn? Friends, we can't argue someone into the kingdom out of frustration or aggression. It's not the way of Jesus. And the beauty is Peter, the very man that wielded the sword. Later on in one of his letters, he calls the Christians saying, we are called to give a response. We are called to give a response to the hope we have in Christ. Yet he concludes, do it with gentleness and respect. Therefore, it's not, it's not the desire to defend Christ. 
to defend our faith that is the issue, but it's how we go about defending it. If we lash out as the aggressor, if we use the sword per se, I believe this reveals a potential lack of trust in who God is and what he says he has done and will do. We seem to forget that Jesus is all-powerful and knows what he is doing, that he is the one that told us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies. If he takes your cloak, give him another one. He walks one mile, walk two with him. In the moment of trying to defend Christ, we fail to represent Christ. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to fight for Jesus. He fought for himself on and through the cross. And he was victorious over sin and death once and for all. And as his followers, we too step in to the victory circle. Jesus was seized and sentenced to death so that death would not seize us. And as this text reveals, Jesus did not use this gruesome moment to try to flee from his captors. No, in the midst of the fight, Jesus endures. And we'll see that in the midst of the painful flight of his disciples, Jesus still endures. Verses 48 through 52 read, And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Following this gruesome scene, Jesus turns his attention to his arresting Yet at the same time, we see that Jesus acknowledges that these events must happen for the scriptures to be fulfilled. And then just like that, he finds himself alone. They all left him and fled. Every single one of them. The ones who just earlier that night all drank the cup with him. The ones who all said, if I must die, I will not deny you. They find themselves in danger and all desert him. Flee. And Jesus is alone. We understand, or we can understand verses 51 and 52 to kind of serve as an appendix to verse 50. There are many speculations of, of who this man is, yet they're speculations at best. Mark doesn't really care for us to know who this first recorded streaker in history is. Rather, he wants us to not focus on who the man is, but what he does. For we see that this man would rather be seen naked by the watching world, then stand next to Jesus. This graphic scene paints the picture of the lengths Jesus' followers were willing to go and the efforts they made to avoid 
being with him. And throughout the Bible, shame and disgrace is what's associated with nakedness. The scene should draw our minds back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Adam and Eve in the garden. Once they sinned against God, they hid, for they were naked and ashamed. The scene reveals this man as naked and ashamed, being a coward before Jesus, who would rather embrace embarrassment and shame than be with him. We see that regardless of where his disciples started the night, resilient in their faith, confident in their resolve, willing to go to arms, in the end, all fled. And arguably, most, if not all of us, are like the disciples. We're prone to flee. The often quoted statement, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, is either not true or more likely, we just recognize we're not really that tough. Rather, when we're put in a harm's way, when we're afraid, we run. And why is that? What leads us to flee? I believe when we wrestle with this reality, we realize we flee because of fear. See, our driving factor in our flight is our fear of man trumps our fear of God. Ed Welch, in his popular book, When People Are Big and God is Small, argues that the fear of man takes on many different forms. It definitely includes being physically afraid of somebody like we see in our garden scene. But it extends beyond that to holding someone in awe, to being controlled or mastered by people, to worshiping other people, putting trust in people, needing people. Ultimately, Ed summarizes fear of man as this. We replace God with people. We replace God with people. Are you prone to replace God with people? What does it look like for you to flee? When we have the opportunity to share about the hope we have in Jesus and stay silent instead. I don't know if you're like me, but I've had many experiences where I just feel like Spirit puts it on my heart to go talk to an individual or to go pray with somebody. And I'm stuck with two options. Do I actually go up and talk to that person? Or do I just kind of wait and walk around until that person leaves? And then say, oh, I was just about to go talk to them. Ah, bummer. What does it look like to flee? What about when we hide the facts that we're a Christian? We downplay our allegiance to God. When we care about our own comfort, our own security, our own good name more than we care about our Savior. When we turn to other things to define us and to satisfy us. 
may be other relationships. It may be our girlfriend, our boyfriend, our husband, our wife. Or maybe the desire for a significant other. Maybe your work, your house, the ideologies and pressures of the world. But in turning to them, we're turning away and fleeing from our God. Or in all these situations, we're placing our trust and security in someone or something other than Jesus. In our flight, we're ultimately saying, Jesus, in this moment, you're just not quite worth it. And for some reason, in our attempt to protect ourselves, we run from God instead of to him. Yet Christian, like the prodigal son, we can turn back. We can repent of our ways and go to him. In humility and repentance, we recognize the errors of our ways and turn back to God, the one, the father with open arms, welcoming his sons and daughters back in. And you see, friends, humility and repentance are the sure signs that we are learning to place our fear rightly in the Lord. It's shifting from the question of what are people going to think of me to what does God, my creator, my sustainer, the one who went to the cross for me, what does he think about me? And it's allowing that truth to trump this truth. Do we feel the weight of these responses? Betrayal from his own apostles misguided violence by Peter and his closest friends all fleeing. And in the midst, Jesus enduring, for Jesus always endures. And it is our enduring Savior who gives us the strength and resolve to stand with him. Let's step back up to verse 48 and see Jesus' response to the arresting crowd. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out? I was against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And Jesus' question of these men, he's ultimately asking, Why now? You've seen me day after day in the temple. I've been engaging with your priests in theological conversations. And yet now in the dead of night, you come to attack. Ironically, if we remember back to Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he's in the temple and overthrows the tables, his indictment is that they've turned the house of the Lord, this house of prayer, into a den of robbers. And now Jesus is being arrested on behalf of those men as if he's a robber. And yet Jesus did not fight his arrest. He endures. Why is that? Because Jesus has the end in sight. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. He lived for God's glory and the scriptures. 
He knew the word of God intimately and knew what needed to be done. And thus, as Isaiah 53 proclaims, he was numbered with the transgressors. The pure, blameless one was blamed. And friends, the Garden of Gethsemane, again, should remind us of another garden, the Garden of Eden. Another garden, another test. A test where everyone fails in one way or another. Betrayal, fight, and flight. But wait, there's something different. For in the middle of this garden, there's someone who's passing that test. Jesus the Christ. In the moment of their flight, as all of his followers were saying, you're not worth it, Jesus was staying and saying, because you are worth it, because I love you and the Father, because I want you to be reconciled to God, I will stay. I will endure. You see, in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus proclaims that he could appeal to God and at once have 12 legions. That's roughly estimated somewhere between 36 and 72,000 angels come down on this scene. They come and avenge him, but he did not. He opened not his mouth. He endured. Those closest to him fled, but he stayed strong, isolated and alone. Yet in reality, this is not even Jesus's greatest moment of isolation. No, that was still to come. For his arrest pales in comparison to the breathtaking isolation that he experiences on the cross. His very Father, our God, let him alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus do this? Why would he bear rejection and isolation? He did this for you. He did this for me. He was rejected and isolated so that we would never have to be. For Jesus' last words on earth to his disciples, where I am with you to the end of the age. He never leaves or forsakes us. Jesus understood what it would take to be made right with God, to be brought back into the garden to stay with him. Justice had to be done. Blood had to be spilled. If we look back to the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, God placed an angel in the pathway with the flaming sword, not allowing anyone back into the garden, back to the tree of life. And in this garden, Jesus the Christ facing the ultimate sword of justice, he endured. He stood firm for Adam and Eve, for you, for me. And through the cross, Jesus paid the cost of entry back into the garden. 
It is through the sacrificial blood that we are redeemed. That is the redeemed in Christ. They can confidently look forward to this ultimate garden in the new heavens and the new earth. For in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, the end of the story, we once again live in a garden where the river of life flows and the tree of life bears fruit. Where we need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be our light and will reign forever and ever. Christians, because Jesus endured for us, we can endure. Stay in the garden with Jesus. We can endure by having the end in sight. And friends, we know the end. Jesus gives it to us. So rest confident and secure in the words of God. Because Jesus makes it clear that suffering is going to come. Temptation will come. We will experience isolation. But by looking to Jesus, we can endure. And the beauty is we know that we don't endure alone. Because Christ endures with us. He is our intercessor. So friends, may we cling to the word and cling to his people. We cling to scripture by resting in the words of God. May you meditate on the words of scripture. For in that you will know the Lord. You will find comfort, clarity, and strength for when these situations arise. And cling to his people. For when God called you, he did not call you to isolation, but he called you to a community. As N.T. Wright says, the church is called to live in the middle of this great scene, surrounded by confusion, false loyalty, direct attack, and traitor's kisses. Those who name the name of Christ must stay in the garden with him until the Father's will is done. If we stand together, united, linked arm in arm, we provide resolve for one another. For a cord of many strands is not easily broken. Link arms and embrace the hurdles together. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I appeal to you to turn to him, to place your trust in him, that regardless of your betrayal, regardless of your fighting against God or his people and regardless of fleeing from God, no matter how many times those things have happened, you're not too far gone. For Jesus endured for you. That through the cross, he has given you access to God. The sword of justice has been sheathed. He has given you access to the tree of life, not let that moment pass you by. Betrayal, fight, flight. Opportunities for all three will come. It's not an if, but a win. If you haven't experienced it yet, it's only a matter of time. And the question is, when you find yourself in harm's way, what will you do?
Stay with Jesus in the garden. Don't leave his side, for he is the firm foundation. He is our cornerstone. He is the cleft in the rock amid the storm. May we cling to Jesus and endure, for Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, endures. Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your scriptures like this that that in many ways are tough. As we hear and experience betrayal and fight and flight and how, if we're honest, we put ourselves in all three of those categories. Yet God, we praise you for your son who in the midst endured, who in the midst gave his life so that we may have life. Lord God, as we turn to communion, may we rest confidently in your son, whose blood was spilled and body broken. In your name, amen.